This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This is part two of a two-part episode I began last week. So if you haven't listened to episode 100, you'll want to start there. I left off last time with Pauline Parker and Juliet Hume desperate to stay together after they discovered that Juliet would be sailing off to South Africa to attend boarding school in just a few weeks' time. Pauline was convinced that the only thing standing in the way of her leaving with Juliet was her mother, Nora. Because of this, Pauline and Juliet began to conspire together to get rid of the obstacle to their happiness. This is Chapter 4 of Written in Blood, The Case of Anne Perry, Part 2. By June 19th, with only three weeks left before the Humes sailed out of the country, Pauline made plans for murder. In her irrational mind, with her mother dead, her father was likely to give her permission. He'd be grief-stricken, and as her only surviving parent, she knew she could talk him into it. But there was no time to lose. Juliet, unsure at first, finally agreed to be part of the plan, and they decided they would make it look like an accident. They would take Juliet's mother for an outing to Victoria Park. Once they found a secluded location, Juliet would drop a pink stone on the path that had come loose from an old brooch she had. When Nora stooped to pick it up, Pauline would hit her in the head. It would look like she'd fallen and struck her head and died. They even talked about what would happen if they were found out. They were minors, they reasoned. Even if they did get sent to prison, at least they'd still be together. And wasn't that the only goal? They were in agreement. They decided on the day, Tuesday, June 22nd. Pauline planned to be on her best behavior with her mother up until that day. She'd then ask her mother to accompany her and Juliet on an outing. She knew that Nora would be thrilled and would agree. On Monday night, Pauline wrote in her diary, I feel very keyed up, as though I were planning a surprise party. The happy event is to take place tomorrow afternoon. Next time I write in this diary, mother will be dead. How odd, and yet how pleasing. Tuesday morning, Pauline helped her mother with chores around the house without complaint. Juliet arrived and the family ate lunch together prepared by Nora. Nora, Pauline, and Juliet then set off for Victoria Park. Juliet's parents remarked that morning their daughter had looked radiantly happy and very calm. After having tea together at the park cafe, the trio set off down the walking path. When they got to a quiet and lonely spot, Juliet went on ahead of the group while Pauline began walking behind Nora. When she was out of eyesight, Juliet dropped the pink stone on the ground. She called for Pauline and Mrs. Reaper to see what she had found. As Nora squatted down to take a look, Pauline took out the brick tied inside the stocking and struck her in the head from behind. Nora fell, but did not die. She began to yell and cover her head with her hands. Pauline continued to smash her mother's head with the brick with great force. Still, Nora continued to try and rise, fighting for her life. Pauline and Juliet forced her down, trying to knock her out before someone heard her screams. Juliet then grabbed the brick that had broken out of the stocking and also began raining blows down on Mrs. Reaper. Finally, she grabbed her around the throat and held her down while Pauline administered the final deadly blows to her mother's skull. 
They tried to drag her body to a ravine to roll her down, but she was already dead weight, and they couldn't budge her very far. They then ran back up to the tea shop, screaming and covered in Nora's blood. The postmortem on Nora's body determined that she'd been bashed in the head, neck, and face over 25 times. There were deep wounds around her eyes, ears, forehead, and scalp, some down to the bone, exposing her skull. Her jaw was broken, and her lower denture was found near her body, submerged in mud. The pathologist would record 45 external injuries on Nora's body and 24 lacerations to her face and scalp. Most of the head wounds were serious, and only a few would have been needed to cause her to fall unconscious. It may have been that the girls were in a panicked or overexcited state, and it didn't register that Nora was dead or dying, so they continued to hammer away at her even after she'd expired. It was one of the most brutal crime scenes the police detectives had ever seen. Because the girls had both confessed to the murder, the only thing left to consider was whether or not they were of sound mind. Psychiatrists were introduced by both sides at their trial. The defense's experts explained that the girls could not be held legally responsible for the crime as they were suffering from a paranoia associated with folia du, or communicated insanity. In today's terms, this is sometimes called shared psychosis, a condition in which two people share the same delusions. They knew what they were doing when they killed Mrs. Reaper, the doctors explained. But because of this condition, were unable to think about it rationally or distinguish right from wrong in the commission of the act. In the doctor's interviews with the girls, a narcissistic personality is clearly evident. In one part of her interview, Pauline speaks about creating her own religion. Only 25 people in the world, including her and Juliet, of course, were on this spiritual level and would enter paradise. Paradise was not heaven, she said, but superior to it. When asked whether she believed she was above the law, Pauline answered, I don't wish to place myself above the law. I am apart from it. Neither of the girls showed any remorse throughout their arrest and trial. They alternately seemed bored, unconcerned, or amused. During Juliet's interview with the doctor, he asked if she felt any remorse for taking Mrs. Reaper's life, and she answered, There's nothing in death. After all, she wasn't a very happy woman. The day we killed her, I think she knew beforehand what was going to happen and she didn't seem to bear any grudge. So, she had no regrets, the doctor asked? None whatsoever, Juliet answered. Portions of Pauline's diary were read into evidence, but Juliet's was not available, having been given to the Hume's gardener to burn the day after the murder by Hilda. This way, Hilda decided, she could deny destroying them herself, even under oath if asked. Hilda and Bill Perry attended every day of the trial. Henry Hume hired and paid for an attorney and an expert psychiatrist to testify in his daughter's defense. Then, before the trial began, he took his son and boarded a ship for Australia and then England. He was criticized in the press as a poor excuse for a father who could leave the country while his only daughter was on trial for a murder. Bert Reaper couldn't bring himself to attend the trial to hear the horrible details of his wife's murder. He stayed home. After two hours of deliberation, the jury came back with its verdict. They were both found guilty of murder. In New Zealand, the sentence prescribed by law for murder was death by hanging. 
However, a provision in the law stated that any person under the age of 18 years would be sentenced to detention during Her Majesty's pleasure. The girls showed no emotion as they were sentenced. Juliet refused to see her mother and was only concerned that she and Pauline would be sent to the same prison. Before their transfer, they were first held in separate cells within the same institution, but were able to see each other during recreation times. Then, Juliet was flown to Auckland to be incarcerated in Mount Eden Prison. Pauline was sent to the more modern Arahata facility. They would forever after be separated from one another. The psychiatrist hired by the Humes for Juliet's defense, Reginald Medlicott, had this to say about the girl's belief that they would sink or swim together and that no matter what happened, they would stay together. The most outstanding defect in their judgment was their complete inability to foresee the natural outcome of their actions, namely separation, Medlicott said. Juliet's own comment during the trial was, Surely no one would be so logical as to separate us. We will behave ourselves as long as no one tries to separate us. Of course, they were separated and sent to different prisons. Juliet was assigned to the harsher institution of Mount Eden. She spent her days, when not on work duty, in an eight-by-six stone-walled cell without heat. She had few visitors. Her father had moved overseas, sending a friend, Vivian Dixon, to check in on his daughter periodically. She would stay in touch with Juliet through letters and a few visits per year. Juliet refused to see her mother. She had tutors who came to help her complete her high school studies. She still carried herself with an air of entitlement, even in prison, and it took a while for her to settle into the prison program. She continued to write to her father, who characterized her as still having her head in the clouds about her future as a wonderful opera singer, a novelist, and a poet. Her work detail was learning to sew prison shirts, and she took that skill further by sewing shirts for her father and learning to sew other items of clothing for herself. Hilda Hume requested that Dr. Medlicott be allowed to see her daughter to treat what she was still convinced was mental illness, but her request was denied. Pauline was sent to the more modern Arahada prison that was set up somewhat like a hospital. Pauline's room was an 8 by 10 foot soundproof room that was heated. She considered herself a celebrity, her trial having been in all the newspapers and followed closely by the media. She refused to adhere to the prison program. I'm a special case here, she told staff members. She also refused to engage with other prisoners. She wrote daily in her diary, long entries addressed to Juliet. Her only other interest, according to her prison file, was collecting photos and articles from magazines related to true crime cases. It's believed that Juliet and Pauline may have gotten letters through to each other for a time by way of other prisoners. Her sister didn't visit her until early in the year following her incarceration. Her father, unable to forgive her for the brutal murder of Nora, visited her only once during her time in prison. Unwilling to apply herself in prison work detail, she was allowed to spend more time in her studies. She completed her coursework to earn her school certificate and then studied for university entrance. She was allowed to visit Victoria University as a reward for her accomplishments. She came into prison angry, aggressive, and moody, but later was characterized in her record as polite, studious, and exemplary in her behavior. It seems time away from Juliet may have done her good. 
1958, Juliet was transferred to Erohata, but the girls would still not be together. At the same time, Pauline was transferred to Christchurch Prison. At Erohata, Juliet was able to see a psychiatrist regularly for sessions. At Christchurch and close to home, Pauline was now visited regularly by her family, including her father, grandmother, and sister Rosemary, who didn't understand why Pauline had stopped visiting her and was thrilled to see her big sister again. Pauline, now studying for a Bachelor of Arts, was allowed monthly weekend parole. She became a devout Catholic, taking instruction from a Roman Catholic priest and attending Mass regularly. In early 1959, it was rumored that the girls convicted of the infamous Parker Hugh murder case, as the press had dubbed it, were to be released. New Zealand's Minister of Justice said that their release had not been under consideration and had not been before the parole board. But ten months later, on December 4, 1959, it was reported that both Juliet Hume and Pauline Parker had been released from prison. It had not been announced ahead of time to keep it out of the media. The girls, it was explained, deserved to make a fresh start without being identified. They had served a little over five years for the murder. When asked why they had been released after such a short sentence, the parole board said they believed that neither girl would have committed the crime on their own. It was just the circumstance of meeting each other at that time and place that led to the commitment of such a brutal crime. They believed that the girls were of no further danger to society. Many reported that one of the conditions of their release was that they were to have no further communication with each other. However, this was false. Juliet Hume's release was classified as unconditional by the parole board. Pauline Parker's release was subject to a few conditions, such as her place of residence and employment, but no conditions were placed on her with regard to Juliet. Whether they communicated afterwards is unknown, but it seems somewhat unlikely. Pauline Parker immediately changed her name upon her release from prison. She was now Hillary Nathan. She was to report to a probation department in Auckland and continued her studies towards her college degree at Auckland University. She took manual jobs to support herself, such as a bottle washer in a hospital. After graduating from college in 1963, she decided to become a nun and entered a convent, but left after a short time. She later moved back to Auckland and became a librarian at the university. After her probation period was up, she left Auckland and disappeared. Juliet Hume left New Zealand immediately and traveled to Sydney, Australia. She lived there anonymously for a time. The New Zealand Department of Justice had provided her with a new identity and passport. Her name was now Anne Stewart. Henry Hume had taken his son back to England, where he was hired to teach mathematics at Cambridge. He was soon enlisted to work with nuclear physicist William Penny at the Atomic Weapons Research Establishment in Berkshire on the Thermonuclear Weapons Project. Henry kept custody of Jonathan with Hilda's consent. She would not have had a leg to stand on in court in 1954, as it was a well-known fact that she left her husband for another man. Soon after returning to England, Henry met and married a woman named Marjorie Ducker. Marjorie brought two children, a son and a daughter, into the marriage. Henry wrote to Juliet while she was in prison to tell her the news and announce that he and Marjorie and the children would be buying a house and moving to the Berkshire countryside. Prison officials intercepted the letter 
calling it heartless and cruel to drop this kind of information on his imprisoned daughter so bluntly. Several weeks later, he wrote a more sympathetic letter, but Juliet was still devastated. Hilda and Bill Perry were excoriated in the press. Hilda attended every day of Juliet's trial with Bill Perry and was forever after labeled as the mother of the murderer and an adulteress. She changed her name to Marion Perry. Bill Perry was also linked to the scandalous case and had trouble finding work. They moved to England where they rented a small house. Hilda described in letters to friends that they were literally scraping by to even put food on the table for a time. Finally, Bill was able to acquire a job with the Daimler Motor Company, and they secured a loan for a house in Coventry. They lived there somewhat anonymously. Juliet didn't stay long in Sydney, but traveled on to Italy where she was met by her father. They planned to travel to England after the news of her release had quieted down in the press. Juliet and Bill's new wife, Marjorie, hated each other on sight. Marjorie announced that Julie could not stay with them. She was dangerous to have around, she decided. Juliet then traveled to Coventry, where she was met with open arms by her mother and Bill. Her attitude about her mother had changed while in prison. Marion and Bill, unlike her father, kept in touch with her throughout her imprisonment and never stopped supporting her, no matter how it affected their reputation or their prospects. Juliet was now overjoyed to be reunited with them. She and her father spent time together now and then by meeting at art galleries or for lunch. Juliet learned secretarial skills in prison and secured a job in an office. After a couple of years, she moved out on her own and began dating. Bill Perry had legally adopted her after her return to England, and she changed her name again to Anne Stewart Perry. She still had the goal of moving to Hollywood, but her visa application to travel to the U.S. was rejected when she had to disclose her murder conviction. Okay, so I'm sure you're wondering, how does this case fit this series about writers who are murderers? So she wrote a few poems, but how is she a writer? Well, hold on, dear listener, because this is where the story takes a turn, if you weren't already aware. From here on in the story, I will refer to Juliet by the name Anne Perry, which would become her recognized name as a well-known crime fiction novelist. But let me get you there. On with the story. Ever resourceful, Anne Perry found a way to get to Hollywood after all. She applied and was hired as a flight attendant with an airline that made trips to the U.S. Through her job, she was allowed to fly into the States on a block visa for short stays. On one trip to Los Angeles, she got off the plane and disappeared into the city. She never returned to her job. Instead, she took a job as a nanny for a family in Hollywood. She lived in Los Angeles, renting an apartment in Beverly Hills from 1967 to 1972. She had many boyfriends, she reports, but never married, even though she'd become engaged once. She became a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at the age of 26 and embraced Mormon teaching, becoming a devout follower. She was able to secure a visa somehow once she was already in the U.S. She returned to England in 1972 when her adopted father, Bill Perry, became ill. Once in England, she took up writing again. Between 1972 and 1978, Perry wrote several historical novels, but none found a publisher. She moved to a small Suffolk town where her next-door neighbor was a published author. 
the writer introduced Anne to her literary agent, Meg Davis. Davis decided to publish Anne's book, The Cater Street Hangman, a murder mystery set in Victorian London. It was published in the United States in 1979 and became a bestseller. Anne Perry was now a published novelist at the age of 41. No one knew or remembered her past as one of the infamous Parker Hume murderers. Around that time, she met a woman named Meg McDonald, who would become a lifelong friend. To Meg, she revealed her past. Meg also collaborated with Anne on many of her novels. And there were many. Anne wrote six days per week, churning out novel after novel. The books were formatted in the lucrative series style, with the same characters returning to investigate and solve mysteries and crime cases in each novel. To date, Anne Perry has written over 100 books and is known as the Queen of the Victorian Crime Novel. By 1994, she had sold more than 3 million books in America and signed a million-dollar contract for future manuscripts. She moved to Scotland and purchased a large home in the Scottish Highlands, where she did all of her writing. Things were going along swimmingly for Anne Perry. She was now living under a new identity as a successful best-selling author with none of her millions of fans or even her closest neighbors aware of her past. That is, until 1994 and the release of the Peter Jackson-directed film, Heavenly Creatures. The film stars a young Kate Winslet in her debut film role and tells the story of the infamous Parker Hugh murder in New Zealand. It was a hit at the box office, and it renewed interest in the case after 40 years. At the opening night party for the movie in New Zealand, some began to speculate about whatever happened to Pauline Parker and Juliet Hume. One of the girls' former classmates at Christchurch Girls High let it casually slip out that Juliet was now a writer named Perry living in Scotland. A journalist for the tabloid Sunday News overheard and did some digging. The journalist, Liz Ferguson, was able to track down Perry's literary agent, Meg Davis. Meg Davis said she must be mistaken and hung up. She called Anne and told her about the ridiculous rumor and about the soon-to-be-released film. Meg had no idea that Anne was the former Juliet Hume. Anne explained to her agent that it wasn't a rumor. It was true. Davis was stunned. Before the story hit the newspapers on July 31, 1994, Anne contacted all the people close to her to tell them the news. To her 82-year-old mother and others who knew her past, she told to brace themselves because the story about the murder was going to reemerge. To those who were close to her but never knew her as Juliet Hume, she confessed her past. Anne Perry agreed to an interview with the Daily Telegraph just a few days later to tell her side and to hopefully appease the hordes of press that had descended on the small village where she lived. She first explained that her past being exposed was one of the most difficult things she'd ever gone through, but was grateful because, now I am free, she said, there's nothing to be afraid of anymore in the middle of the night. She was interviewed by television programs in the U.S., where a majority of her fans lived. As a result of Perry being outed in the media, her book sales skyrocketed. In 1994, before she was revealed, she'd sold 3 million copies of her novel. In the decade following, a total of 20 million books were sold worldwide. And what exactly did Anne Perry say about the murder? 
She still took responsibility for taking part in Nora Parker's murder, but now she gave more details as to her motive. She was a lonely girl growing up, she explained to the interviewer. She had been sick for much of her young life and was often hospitalized and away from her family. Her only friend at that time, or really ever, was Pauline Parker. Her family was planning to move out of the country, and she felt she was deserting her friend. I don't want to in any way implicate or blame her, she said, but she wished me to join her in this act, and I believed that if I did not, she would take her own life. She felt her mother was the only thing stopping her from leaving a situation she felt was intolerable. I believed at that time her survival depended on her coming with us. I certainly believed that her life was in the balance. Crazy as this sounds, I thought it was one life or the other. I just couldn't face the thought of being responsible for her dying. And I made a very foolish choice. She also said that her friend Pauline was suffering from life-threatening bulimia, which further made her feel desperate to help her friend. She further explained that her tuberculosis treatment included a drug that she'd later found warps judgment. The drug had since been banned because of this, she said. She'd been on the drug for nine months at the time of the murder. When further pressed for details of the murder, she said she didn't remember much, explaining that she must have blocked it out. But in his excellent book about the case titled Anne Perry and the Murder of the Century, author Peter Graham points out that Dr. Medlicott testified at the trial about Juliet's tuberculosis treatment, including the medications she had been administered, none of which produced mind-altering side effects. Both were commonly used antibiotics. Also, Juliet had left the sanatorium a full nine months before the murder and was no longer taking even these medications. Also, while Pauline did suffer from an eating disorder, it was never determined to be at a life-threatening stage, and Pauline was being seen by a doctor for her condition. Finally, he points out, far from participating in the murder under moral duress, and only out of fear for her friend's life, Juliet's own mother said on the morning of the murder that she seemed, quote, radiantly happy. Neither of them ever showed the slightest remorse, Dr. Medlicott testified and no one can forget Juliet's statement to the psychiatrist shared during her trial. There's nothing in death. After all, she wasn't a very happy woman, she said of her victim. In 2017, Anne Perry left her home in Scotland to move to America. She put her four-bedroom home with views of the Scottish Highlands on the market for £440,000 or 560,000 US dollars. She was moving to Hollywood to be closer to her projects. Many of her books were slated to be made into television movies. She is now 78 years old. She maintains that she has had no contact with her former friend Pauline, wishes her well, but has no interest in communicating with her. Pauline Parker, aka Hillary Nathan, also made her home in Scotland. Reporters contacted her sister Wendy when the story of the murder reemerged in the press. Wendy, with her sister's permission, told reporters that she now lived as a recluse in a small village. She lived a very solitary religious life. She didn't have a television or even a radio, so she wouldn't have heard Anne Perry's interviews or seen heavenly creatures. 
She doesn't have contact with the outside world, Wendy told reporters. She's a devout Roman Catholic and spends much of her time in prayer. She also said that her sister had led a good life and was very remorseful about what she'd done. Later, more information was revealed in the press that Pauline Parker had spent her life in service as a teacher of special needs children. Her employers at the school where she worked also knew nothing of her past. After her retirement, she opened a writing school where she gave lessons. She refuses to give any interviews or speak with the press. Dr. Henry Hume went on to have a distinguished career as director of nuclear research for the Atomic Weapons Research Establishment. When some began to protest atomic weapons and protesters began to march with ban the bomb signs at the research facility, he was asked how he felt about this. He replied, couldn't care less. He died in 1991 at the age of 82. Bill Perry died in 1986, and Hilda, now known as Marion Perry, worked as a volunteer teaching English as a second language until she was 80 years old. She moved to Scotland to be near her daughter and bought a cottage in a fishing village. She stayed active until she died at the age of 91 in 2004. Anne Perry's younger brother, Jonathan, moved to Zimbabwe where he worked as a doctor. He married and had two children. After he retired, he moved to Scotland and now helps his sister with research on her novels. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're at the end of the month, so that means it's time for Patreon shoutouts for those who have pledged at the highest level, $10 or above. Thank you so much for going above and beyond. Our newest pure metalhead level patrons are Holly Smith, Chris Bairstow, and Sarah Confrancisco. Thank you so much. You guys rock. It's also time for a monthly drawing to win some prizes. This month, our lucky prize winner is going to receive the book, Cooking with the Serial Killer, Recipes from Dorothea Puente. Dorothea Puente was a California serial killer who murdered her tenants at her Sacramento boarding house to collect their social security checks. But she was also known as a fabulous cook. In this book, she shares recipes of some of her tastiest soups, stews, and main dishes. The lucky winner will also receive a signed collector's copy of Entertainment Weekly magazine featuring the Rebecca Schaefer article that featured Once Upon a Crime. You'll also get some OUAC swag. And the winner is Nicole Arendt from Chicago. Congratulations, Nicole. That prize pack will be going out to you soon at the address we have on file for you. And thanks so much for your continued support of the podcast. Next Monday is Labor Day, a holiday in the U.S., so a regular episode will not be released. But there will be a bonus episode coming out soon, our next installment of The Next Chapter. This time, I'll interview author Peter Vronsky about his new book, Sons of Cain, A History of Serial Killers from the Stone Age to the Present. It's a fabulous read, and I know you'll love hearing from the author. Finally, I'm working on a bonus episode for Patreon supporters, one more chapter for this series, Written in Blood. Look for that soon as well. If you're a Patreon supporter, you should receive a message either by email or as a notification from your Patreon app. If you're not a supporter, you can do that easily by going to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime. If you pledge as little as $2 per month, you'll get a whole bunch of bonus content that's already available there, early release ad-free episodes, and will be eligible for our monthly drawing. 
new and unique prizes each month. If you're celebrating the long holiday weekend, have fun, be safe, and be good to one another. Thank you.